Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for Jesus, for the word of God, for grace, for forgiveness of sin, for mercy. Lord, that you've given us everything that we need in Christ. And Lord, we thank you for the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, empowering us, enabling us, giving us the courage, Lord, to walk with you. And Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would speak to hearts, that you would minister to hearts. That, Lord, you would go places that only you can go. And that you would search deeply into the hearts and the men and women who have come here. Not to hear from me, but to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 15, it says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father. And he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth, whom the, the world cannot receive. Excuse me. <clears throat> Gotta take a drink. Verse 16. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, Whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Earlier in chapter 14, verse 8, you'll remember Philip made the statement, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. He was in effect saying, I want you to show me God. And the answer Jesus gave shocked and stunned the listening friends. Jesus reminded them that he's the embodiment of God in verse 9. Jesus made good his claims of deity by the signs of his ministry. 
And remember, the Gospel of John has been devoted to those signs. He turned water into wine. He healed the nobleman's son. He healed the paralyzed man. He fed the 5,000. He walked on water. He healed the blind man. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And so Jesus asks his disciples to believe him in verses 10 through 12. That he's come from God and that the person who believes Jesus will find new power to do great works and receive answers to prayer in verses 13 and 14. And the disciples were distraught over the stunning revelations of betrayal. People will betray me, he said. Trusted friends. There was the impending departure of Jesus. And if ever there was a time not to leave, the time for them was now. Jesus, we've just now gotten used to you. We've actually become quite fond of you. Okay, we love you. And we don't want you to go. The disciples loved him. And they began to depend upon his presence. And now Jesus, faced with the prospect of his own impending death, wants to relieve Fear and anxiety that grip their souls. Jesus will now make promises, gracious promises about, about how to deal with fear and how to reduce anxiety and how love for the Father and love for the Son and love towards the Spirit that the love of Jesus Christ releases from guilt. You know, in the law there is this concept. It's known as dying declaration. And the dying declaration is, quote, a statement by a person who is conscious and knows that death is imminent concerning what he or she believes to be the cause or circumstances of death that can be introduced into evidence during a trial in certain cases. It goes on and says, quote, a dying declaration is considered credible and trustworthy evidence based upon the general belief that most people who know that they are about to die do not lie. Jesus is giving his dying declarations. That's what chapter 14 are. These are the dying declarations of the Savior. Jesus has promised to pr prepare a place for them in verses 1 through 6. Jesus has promised to reveal the Father to them in verses 7 through 11. Jesus has promised to give them a new privilege in prayer in verses 12 through 14. Now, Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit. By the way, there are many passages of Scripture that deal with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit at great length here in verses 15 through 26. A little bit later, in John chapter 16, verses 7 through 15, it will also talk about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. But here, Jesus reveals some things about the Holy Spirit, his identity and his work. And in this passage, we're going to learn several important things about the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is the comforter. He's the other helper in verse 16. The spirit of truth in verse 17. The Holy Spirit is the very presence of God in a personal way. 
He is our teacher. And we're certainly going to talk more about the Holy Spirit. But one of the things that I want to draw to your attention right from the start is when Jesus introduces the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, it's in this overwhelming context. It's in the context of broken hearts and empty hearts. It's in the context of deep, dark, personal shadows. The disciples need comfort. They need help. They need truth. They need the presence of God. And so, in effect, they're saying, Jesus, you you can't leave us now. We need you. You're the only one who will do. I know. I'll take care of that. No, no, you don't understand. We need someone miraculous. I know. We need someone supernatural. Good. We need someone self-existent and eternal. Good. We need someone close to home. It doesn't get any more close than living inside of you. Look what he's saying. The presence of obedience. It begins with verse 15. He says in that context, if you love me, keep my commandments. The words of Jesus had a lasting effect on the Apostle John who wrote this gospel and who would later write the epistles of 1 John and 2 John and and 3 John. And for John, obedience always becomes the ultimate litmus test concerning whether or not a person has a right relationship and friendship both with the Father and the Son. Clearly, Jesus is pointing out that obedience is, is not an option. If you love me, keep my commandments. Again, remember the context. Jesus shows his love to the Father by obeying the Father. Can you imagine Jesus saying, you know, I love the Father and the Father loves me, but I'm not going to do what he says. I love the Father and the Father loves me. I know the Father has sent me, and I know the Father wants me to live the perfect life that you could never live. I know that the Father wants me to die on the cross. I know all of that, but I don't want to do what He wants me to do. We're not talking about a person who He Himself hasn't submitted and obeyed His Father in every way. The person who really loves Jesus, look says, if you love me, you will keep. By the way, the, the verb keeping, tereste, means keep on an ongoing basis. It means to listen and respond. And again, we're not talking about an obedience to earn favor or love, but rather an obedience that proceeds from a loving relationship. C.K. Barrett wrote, John never allows love to devolve into a sentiment or emotion. Its expression is always moral and is revealed in obedience, unquote. Over and over again, I've shared with you that sentiment is emotion without commitment. 
Clearly, there's an emotional component to love, but love is rooted and grounded in a willingness to do what's right towards the person who's loved. It's not an emotion. It's not just simply a feeling. Feeling good doesn't constitute loving Jesus. And feeling bad doesn't constitute not loving Jesus. William Barclay points out the hypocrisy of people who love with words, but who bring pain and heartbreak in their selfish actions. And so from the perspective of Jesus, love isn't easy. Let me help you. If sentiment is love without commitment, sentiment is like going to a movie that makes you cry. When I was flying back to Israel on this last trip, they played the movie Marley and Me. Yeah, it's a nine-hour flight, and I thought, okay, I'll watch it. Now, I'm not going to give away the story, but obviously it's the story about a dog and his family. And it just reminded me why I could only love one dog in a lifetime. I don't have the emotional reservoir available to love each and every dog that comes into my life. If love is a willingness to do what's right, from the perspective of Jesus, the person who claims to love Jesus in their heart, but refuse to obey him in their thinking or their speaking or their living is engaging in the worst form of deceit. Because it's a self-deceit. Jesus doesn't leave that as an option. The person who says, look, I love God in my own way and I love Jesus in my own way. And because I love God in my own way and believe in Jesus in my own way, I'm willing to go to Calvary. I'm willing to drop the children off in the children's ministry. I'm hoping that some of this Jesus stuff will rub off on them. I'm hoping that they'll be good and godly children. I hope they'll believe the part of the Bible that says obey your parents. But hey, that's not for me. Albert Barnes wrote, it doesn't require great learning to be a Christian and be convinced of the truth of the Bible. It requires only an honest heart and a willingness to obey God. John Owen, the great Puritan preacher, said, then we are servants of God. Then we are the disciples of Christ when we do what is commanded us because it is commanded us. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you love me, if this isn't just lip service, if this is something that emerges from real relationship and friendship, obedience, by the way, doesn't cause salvation. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul writes, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Obedience comes. From friendship and relationship and love. In John chapter 13, verse 34, in the earlier chapter, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Well, that's not a new commandment. That's in the Old Testament. 
Over and over again, God had told the children of Israel to act responsibly towards one another, to do what was right towards one another, to love God and to love your neighbor. But Jesus adds the addendum in John thirteen thirty four, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. That's the new commandment. If you love me, that's what you'll do. But here's the problem. We don't have it in us to do that. You see, one of the most miraculous things that can ever occur in the life of a person is to come to grips with the fact that you can't live the life of Christ apart from Christ. As a matter of fact, there's only one person who can live the life of Christ, and that is Christ. But he's willing to live that life in you and through you. And so the presence of the Holy Spirit is spoken of in verse 16. He says, and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. I want you to understand the very promise of a helper. Again, you don't have to have advanced degrees in theology to get this. The very promise of a helper means that we need. Yes. Yes, we need help. The word helper, by the way, is the Greek noun parakletos. It's a rich and textured word, one, quite frankly, that, that can't be translated adequately with just one word. As a matter of fact, the word itself, para, means alongside, and kletos was the word to describe help or aid or comfort. When I was praying and reading and preparing this message, I thought, in the ancient world, remember before Jesus uses this word to, to, to describe the Holy Spirit, the parakletos was a first responder. Do you know what a first responder is? If you're drowning, the first responder might show up with a boat or a rock. Now, if you're drowning and they go, I have a rock and I have a boat, which would you prefer? How many would go with the rock? I hope you don't raise your hand because that means you haven't been listening. You want a boat. The first responder shows up and gives you what you need. The parakletos in this particular instance is a supernatural first responder. The parakletos in the ancient world was the person who was called in. But I want you to note something. It's for the very reason that the person is called in that gives the word its rich texture. If you've been shot in the chest, do you want a lawyer or a doctor? I know what some of you are thinking. I want both. But if you want both, you're going to go with the doctor, I hope, first, and the lawyer second. In the ancient world, the parakletos could be called in to render testimony in a court proceeding. If you're arrested and you face possible execution or imprisonment or punishment, you want someone who can render you the aid that you need. Barclay refers to the parakletos and the role of a chaplain in the ancient armies where a company of soldiers who are dis, 
dispirited and depressed are given new courage in their mind and their heart to face the battle. Always, always, always the parakletos was called in. When things were in need or when there was profound trouble, our introduction of the Holy Spirit by Jesus doesn't consist at first of a dramatic disclosure of the theological implications of the Godhead, but the aid rendered by the Godhead for the believer who's collapsing under the pressure of deep sorrow and unbearable darkness. That's what he's talking about. It's the prayer that I'll bet each and every one of you have prayed. Lord, Where are you? I need you. I'm in a dark place. I'm in an empty place. I am in a place where if you're guilty, you need forgiveness. If you're empty, you need to be full. If there's a conspicuous lack of joy and peace in your life, then you're going to need joy and peace. When Wycliffe first translated this word parakletos, he translated it comforter. But comforter meant a whole lot more then than it does now. You know, one portion of the word comforter is the word fortis. We get the word fort from that. Also, for those of you who took a shower before you came to church, and you're taking your shower, and you reach for the cream cream rinse, and you see it says, with fortifying nutrients. It's the same word. It meant to strengthen. It actually has the root meaning of brave. The comforter was a person who called you to be brave. Particularly when you needed to be brave. Our understanding of the word comfort is almost exclusively associated with sorrow. A comforter is a person who sympathizes us with us in our, in our deep sorrow. Now clearly the Holy Spirit does that. The Holy Spirit comforts us in our sorrow, but the Holy Spirit also strengthens us in order to do what must be done. As a matter of fact, again, Barclay wisely pointed out, to limit his work to that function is sadly to belittle him. We often talk of being able to cope with things. That is precisely the work of the Holy Spirit. He takes away our inadequacies and enables us to cope with life. The Holy Spirit substitutes victorious for defeated living. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit comes, anoints, fills, provides. In the earlier verse, Jesus linked Love to obedience to his commandments. Now, Jesus is speaking of his love for them. And as he's speaking of his love for them, he's talking about his love for you. How much does Jesus love you? He says, I'll pray the Father. I will pray the Father and the Father will give the disciples another comforter. We need you. There are two words in the Greek language that are translated another. One is the word heteros. 
it is a word that carries a nuance of another but different. In our culture, in our society, we use the word heterosexual. It comes from the Greek word heteros, which describes someone who is attracted to someone of the opposite sex. In other words, a person, another person, but different in the sense of gender. The word translated another in this verse is not that word. It is alos, which means another of the same kind or in the same category. The word that Jesus uses here, another, alos, parakletos, Another helper, another comforter, another encourager, another counselor, another exhorter, another intercessor, another advocate. Another helper who is exactly like him, eternal, immortal, omnipresent, powerful. As a matter of fact, one Bible teacher writes, the Holy Spirit is the perfect substitute for the Lord Jesus Christ, the original helper. As a matter of fact, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, where John talks about, we have an advocate. It's the same word, parakletos. We have Jesus. And then we have the Holy Spirit. And just like Jesus taught, the Spirit would taught in John chapter 14, verse 26. Just like Jesus would strengthen them in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, the Holy Spirit will strengthen us. Jesus prayed for his disciples. The Holy Spirit makes intercession in Romans 8, 26. Even though his departure is imminent, the Lord promises that the Holy Spirit will be with them forever. What kind of a being can be with you forever? It would have to be an eternal being. A being who can show up and be with you and be in you. In verse 17, he says, it's the spirit, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. For he dwells with you and will Be in you. There's a reason why the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. Again, you don't have to be a theologian to figure this one out. Truth, in order to be true, has to be consistent with reality. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth because the Holy Spirit speaks the truth concerning the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, no one can say that Jesus Christ is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit says what Jesus says is true, he's bearing testimony to the life, the ministry, the words, the miracles, the claims of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. Have you ever heard the expression... Seeing is believing. But the material atheist, the existentialist, the scientific naturalist cannot, will not, refuses to see the invisible, eternal, immortal, Holy Spirit, the unbelieving, the unregenerate person. 
doesn't know the spirit of truth. Because the spirit of truth shows up and says, Jesus Christ is Lord. His life, His miracles, His claims, His ministries, they're true. And there's a voice that whispers into the ear of the unregenerate and the unbelieving. It's not true. It's a fairy tale. It's a myth projection. It's a fiction. It's what people do in order to satisfy themselves because they refuse to come to grips with the fact that when you die, that's it. And Jesus comes along and dies and comes back to life. But that's for next week. The world is completely ignorant of the Holy Spirit. The world cannot receive Him. But look what Jesus says, tells His disciples. You know Him, for He dwells with you, and He shall be in you. As a matter of fact, Paul will later write in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Paul writes and he says that the presence of the Spirit of God inside of your heart is the determining factor of whether or not you are connected to God and have a right relationship with God. It's not whether if you go to church. It's not if you've got a Bible, even a really big, thick one, and you go, I have a really big, thick Bible. It's not having a big, thick Bible that, that marks the believer. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of them. Well, I go to church. You know, a lot of people go to church, and the presence of the Holy Spirit is not inside them. Well, I love God in my own kind of weird way. Really? Then how do you explain your life? How do you explain the rebellion and the disobedience? Does the Spirit of God, does the Spirit of Christ, does the Spirit of truth live inside of you? As a matter of fact, Paul will go on and he'll talk about a test. He says, examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith. It is an examination that can only take place by the self. Because the invisible, eternal presence of the Holy Spirit can only be known by the person who does or doesn't have the Holy Spirit. And you might say, how do I know for sure? Look, you do know. The Bible says that the Spirit inside of you bears witness with the with His Spirit, that you are in fact a person who belongs to God. Let me give you a simple illustration. You either have a driver's license or you don't. You don't have to be really smart to figure this out. If I ask you, do you have a driver's license? There are people here who say, no, I do not. I know that I don't. And those of you who do have it, you'll go, yeah, I do. And those of you who are driving on a suspended license, I hope and pray God's convicting you of that. I know someone's here going, how did he know? How did he know? I'm not, I have no idea, and I, I hope nobody's driving on a suspended license. But if you have a license, you went to 
The motor vehicles department, you took a test. They gave you a picture. It's in your wallet or your purse. You know. And if you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've repented of your sin, you've turned from your sin, you've embraced Christ. You know. Why do we need the life-giving presence of the Holy Spirit? It's for the simple but sublime reason that Christianity is all about Christ. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit connects you to Christ and participates in the life of Christ and declares the person of Christ. Why do we need it? It's because you won't be able to live the life of a Christian apart from it. This is the one thing that kept me from being a Christian for so long. People would say, you should be a Christian. I go, no, you don't understand. I'm not good at being a Christian. What's the expectation of a Christian? Well, you know, Christians go to church and they read their Bible. And they love each other. I go, I don't. Not only do I not love people, I pretty much hate them. I don't like being around people. People. The only thing, a good thing I can say about people is that most of them are better than me. I can't be a Christian. Because the thoughts that I think and the words that I speak and the life that I live is completely contrary to what the Bible says. Until someone told me that I could experience the love of God and the grace and the mercy of God and the ability to love and honor God if I would simply allow the presence of the Father and the presence of the Son and the presence of the Holy Spirit to come inside of me and live the life of Jesus, the life that I can't live. And for the person who drops their child off at our church and takes them to the children's ministry, hoping and praying, hoping to God that at least one part of the Bible will rub off on them, the part that says, honor your mom and your dad. i got to tell you something. We're here to tell your children that the love of God and the love of Jesus Christ can be theirs in Christ. We're teaching your children to know God and to honor God and to believe the Bible and to believe the authority of the Bible and and then enter into real life and love and forgiveness and hope in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you don't want that, you need to take them out of the church. Because we will continue to do that. Because that's what the Lord wants Do you know what the Lord expects from you? Failure. Jesus lived a perfect life of submission and obedience and perfect love. And if you're going to live a life of love and obedience, you're not going to be able to do it. Unless the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of you, available to you, bringing you peace and power. John Phillips writes simply but powerfully, the Christian life is a supernatural life. It is the life of Christ lived out in every believer by means of the indwelling Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit inside of you? 
is the presence of Jesus in your life. Look what it says in verse 18. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Clearly, Jesus is aware of his future. He knows he's going to die. He knows the disciples will feel abandoned. He knows about their fear and their anxiety. He knows about the overwhelming sense of loss. He knows about the dark black hole. He knows about the profound emptiness. He knows about the profound nagging presence of guilt. But it's only temporary. Here's his promise. Remember, it's the dying declaration. I will come to you. At first blush, the reference seems to be to his resurrection. But Jesus is present and connected in the Holy Spirit. The physical absence of Jesus would be replaced by the spiritual presence of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, in verse 19, it says a little while longer and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You will live also. The apostles who were present during this dying declaration, Jesus is saying, will also be present to witness his glorious resurrection. The world won't see Jesus in just a few moments. Jesus is going to be taken. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be placed in a prison. He is going to be tortured. He is going to be executed. They're going to take him and they're going to affix him to a a Roman cross to a piece of wood. They're going to connect his wrists and his feet to a cross and they are going to kill him. The world will see Jesus executed. The world will see Jesus through the shock and the trauma and the pain of the people who watch the execution. The world will see Jesus through the shock and the trauma of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus as they take his dead body from this cross, as they wrap his bodily body in swaddling clothes, as they attach perfumes, as they place him in a rock tomb, as the shadow of the corpse lies inside of the tomb, and as the last glimpses of his dead corpse is placed on that ledge and the rock is closed and the seal is set and the guard is given, they won't see him again. But the disciples will. The resurrection of Jesus doesn't simply prove the claims of Jesus, but it also provides the substantial proof that the disciples themselves will come back to life. Jesus, I feel like we're all going to die. I know you feel that way. And some of you will die. But I'll come back to life. And so will you. 
Jesus with death just around the corner. Jesus with the certainty of death breathing down his holy neck defies death. And then boldly states, because I live, you will live also. Jesus uses the dateless, timeless, present tense indicating undying life when he says, because it's hard to translate, but let me give it a try. Because I am living and will continue to live and will always live, you will live also. The world watches and you suffer. A car hits you. Cancer attacks you. A diving accident takes your life. A virus takes your life for seeming every reason and no reason and people die. And the reoccurring testimony of the world is, and that's it. If there's anything else, we don't know about it. That's not true. That is a lie. Paul writes about this very point in 1 Corinthians 15.20 when he says, But now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man death came, by man also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, even in Christ all will be made alive. Paul embraces the dying declaration of Jesus and says... Because Jesus is alive forever, I'll be alive forever. But Jesus says, you will see me. By the way, again, Jesus is using the present tense. I don't think it means just simply, you will see me when I rise from the dead. It is, you will see me. And you will see me. Over and over again. In this sense, those who believe in Jesus will continue to see him over and over and over and over through the eyes of faith until life's journey is cut short and the race that we've been running ends. And in Revelation 22, 4, it says, and then we will see Jesus face to face. In Italian, we have an expression. Face a face. I know, Italian people are sometimes weird that way. You know, like, they'll press their cheek right up against your cheek, and you go, look, I, I need my space. Just sort of back off, okay? But I'm going to suggest something to you. That there will come a time when you will press your face to Jesus' face. You will press your face to His face. And in verse 20 it says, at that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Listen carefully. Jesus began with a word of comfort. 
The word of comfort has led to a word of commitment. But now both comfort and commitment cause this dark cloud to lift. The bright lights of comprehension begin to shine in hearts and minds. At that day, you will get it. Well, I, don't, I don't get it right now. I know. And I don't blame you for not getting it. But with comfort and with commitment comes the promise of comprehension that you will get it. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father. And you in me. And I in you. The very presence of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit rushing you, filling you with light and love. Do you remember the day of Pentecost? Do you remember after Jesus rises from the dead and he ascends into heaven and the, and the disciples gather together in an upper room and the wind blows and like a mighty rushing wind, the Holy Spirit comes in and begins to empower them and equip them for the purposes that God has called them to. The Lord Jesus is in the Father. We are in Him and He is in us. And the Bible teaches that believers are in Christ. And because we're in Christ, we're to experience the life of Christ. And that's why there's nothing, no nothing, no nothing more disappointing to me. To hear. That some of you act as if you're not in Christ. That somehow the only way you're going to be able to make it, the only way you're going to be able to face life's problems and deal with life's traumas and deal with the circumstances that you face is to deny and disobey God. It's to live in rebellion and disobedience. It's to somehow come to the false conclusion that the presence of God in Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you, isn't sufficient to help you be brave. For the person who calls me up and says, Gino, I've got to talk to you and I can only talk to you. Well, then you're in deep kimchi. And for those of you who think I just cussed, kimchi is a form of Korean cabbage. It tastes really good, but smells kind of funny. I want you to just do the math here for just a moment. If the eternal, immortal, invisible, powerful, self-existent, Holy Spirit can't help you, but Gino can, then something is terribly wrong with this picture. Because here's what I want to do. I want to point you to the person who loves you. Who's made the dying declaration, the promise that the Spirit of God would be in you and that the Son would be in you. Who loves Jesus? Look what it says in verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be beloved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Who loves him? The one who keeps his commandments. Who does the Father love? The Father loves the one who loves the Son. 
And so for the person who says, hey, look, I love God, but I'm just not into this Jesus stuff. No, it's like a package deal. If you have the Father, you have the Son. If you don't have the Father, you don't have the Son. John will write about that. He he will actually say those specific words. He who has the Son has the Father, and he who does not have the Son does not have the Father. Well, I, I love God. Really? Is that the testimony of your life? That you love God? Then how do you explain your life? Because you see, love's first task is to find out what the loved one loves. If you've ever truly loved someone, then you're, you ask them this question, what is it that you love? What is it that you desire? What is it that you want? As a matter of fact, our practical obedience to His command is love's first test. And it's the sure test. And the love is made manifest in character and conduct. By the way, the word for manifest is interesting. It's the Greek verb, emphanizo. The idea is that you present something in such a clear and conspicuous way. The idea of revealing something that was once hidden, that it is obvious, it is known, it is clear, it is unmistakable. Now, if I came out and I wore a hat that said, I love Mary Geraci. And someone said, do you love Mary Geraci? The hat says you do. Do you? Do you? Does your life reflect the life of love? Does your life reflect the life of commitment and sacrifice? Does your love does your life reflect loving in a real way? The word is first, by the way, used of the resurrected saints who pop out of their graves after the resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus rises from the dead, it says that some go off to Jerusalem and appear, it's the same word, infinitzo, to many. In other words, when a person comes back from the dead and then is in your face, if a, if a dead person quite literally comes back to life and says, hi, it's kind of hard to ignore that testimony. Hey, aren't you the dude who's dead? Yeah. Wow. The Lord is making a very special promise, and the promise is He will reward those who love Him. He will show the love in a very special way. The Lord God will come and live inside of you. As a matter of fact, Judas, not Iscariot, doesn't understand. Judas, not Iscariot, said, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and we will make our home with him. I I need you to be close. It doesn't get any closer than living inside of you. What that basically means is that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit dwell inside of you. But look what it says in verse 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words. 
You know, it's interesting. In verse 23, Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. It's singular. Why do you suppose that is? Because the word in verse 23 means the sum and the substance of everything that he has said. And in verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words. These are the specific commands. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Listen to what he's saying. I didn't make this up. This is something that the Father has given me to say to you. God the Father wanted God the Son by God the Holy Spirit to impress upon you the fact of His presence inside of you. And look what it says. If that's true... Jesus is telling the disciples what each and every one of us need to hear. First, that the knowledge of the truth, that is the presence of the spirit of truth inside of you, removes fear. Think about what Jesus is saying. The word of God takes away the superstition and trauma of death and then places it in a context that each and every one of us can understand. Jesus is telling the child of God that death isn't the end. The world will tell you that death is is the end, but death is not the end for the child of God. And the knowledge and the application of that information is supposed to reduce anxiety in your life. It's supposed to provide for you the knowledge that you need. And listen carefully. To be brave. To be brave. Because the Christian life is not an easy life. And the love that Jesus is talking about is not an easy love. Because it's the love of commitment. Note the phrase, He who has my commandments and keeps them in verse 21. You might ask the question, well, what does that mean? What are his commandments? The answer? Read Matthew and read Mark and read Luke and read John and read the book of Acts and read the book of Romans. Read Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. Read it all and as you're reading it all, part of what the point is that you make the Word of God a vital part of your life because as you're making the Word of God a vital part of your life, you're looking at it and you're reading it and you're asking the question, is this something that Jesus wants for me? Is this something that Jesus is asking me to do? And think about it. If that means making God's Word a vital part of your life, do you think it also means doing God's Word is supposed to become a vital part of your life? I think so. And love for the Lord releases guilt. Look what it says in verse 23 and 24 again. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him. We will make our home inside of him. Well, God, I'm not good enough for you to be in there. You're so right. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, hold your nose. Here we go. No, here's what 
Here's the promise. The promise is I will come into you. I'll be in you. And I will be with you. Even though you don't feel it. Even though in that dark and empty and lonely moment, God seems so far away. But the Lord is as close as the inside of your heart and the inside of your thoughts as you love Him and believe Him and desire to please Him. Because think about it. Love is the highest motivation. And when you love the Lord, that's exactly what you'll do. You'll desire to please Him. Imagine you're married. That won't be hard for some of you. And imagine someone says to you, what would your spouse do if you became unfaithful? And you say, she would first kill you, and then she would kill me. Or she would kill the person I happen to be unfaithful with. So, why are you remaining loyal? Well, the threat of death is hanging over my head. And with the threat of death hanging over my head, it just seems a good idea to go ahead and remain faithful. Do you think that that answer is more satisfying than, I love my wife. I love her. It is my love for her. My desperate desire to love her and to please her and to honor her that keeps me faithful. Which makes more sense to you? The person who's motivated by fear or the person who's motivated by love? These things I've spoken to you, Jesus says, while being present with you. Part of what he's saying is I want to go on record. I am here and I'm telling you this and I need you to believe it. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to speak concerning Jesus. The Holy Spirit will point to Jesus, the love of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the hope of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. Well, doesn't the Holy Spirit feel a little left out? No. There's a reason why the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of God. Why, why do we believe that the Holy Spirit is God? Well, because the Holy Spirit is called God in the Bible. Because the Holy Spirit is treated on an equal basis with the Father and the Son. And the Holy Spirit has the attributes of God. And the Holy Spirit does the work of God. Well, what else have you got? Hello? Did you just hear what I said? If you do the work of God, if you're treated on an equal basis with God, if you have the attributes of God, and you do the works of God, that makes you God. And the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth for good reason. Phillips Brooks, pastor and preacher, said, Truth is always strong, no matter how weak it looks. And falsehood is always weak, no matter how strong it looks. The Holy Spirit will tell you the truth about Jesus. And so if someone says to you something that isn't true concerning Jesus, 
then that spirit is not the spirit of the Holy Spirit. This is why John will later write, don't believe every spirit. But test the spirit to see whether or not they're from God. The chapter begins with Jesus promising a place in the Father's house. A place of joy, a loving place, a prepared place, an exclusive place. He continues and reminds the believer that while we're on the earth in this temporary tent, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit will make their home inside your heart. And just as the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle in the wilderness, so the Trinity will fill your heart with Their majestic presence and that light residing in you is sufficient to dispel even the darkest, even the deepest, even the loneliest shadow. Let me ask you something. Has your ignorance of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you caused you to live in fear and Anxiety and emptiness and loneliness and the vicious cycle of wickedness and addiction? Are you afraid even now, even even with a trembling hand, even with a skeptical heart, even with a jaded eye? Are you willing to say, I want to live my life in and for And through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you ask that question, I'm going to ask you a question. How did you receive Jesus Christ? By faith, you say? How do you live in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit? By faith. The same way you receive Christ is the same way that you walk in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. The power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to lead you, to guide you, to guard you, to protect you, to support you, to encourage you, so that you can be Heavenly Father, I do pray for these men and women. Loving you is not easy. It's hard. Desiring to do what's right is not easy. It's hard. Refusing to obey you, that's easy. Walking in our own way, that's easy. Satisfying ourselves, that's easy. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us the courage to love you and the courage to honor you and the courage to love each other, knowing, Lord, that apart from Christ, we can't do it. We will fail. We can put on an act. We can put on a show. We can fool people maybe for a moment that the lasting, abiding presence of love will be conspicuous by the fraudulent ways that we defraud one another. And so, Lord, we pray, we pray, we pray that we would love you and honor you.
Lord, I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would nudge and urge and energize. I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would bear witness to what the Word of God has said concerning the Son of God. Fill us now, Lord, with the Holy Spirit so that we can walk in love with you and with each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.